A Crisis of Identity. That's the title of our series of 11 studies here on Search for Truth, your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. I'm thrilled you've been able to join us for talk number five, and it's about our Christian identity and how the Bible describes us. In the title for today's study, it's Do I Recognise That I'm Deeply Fallen? While you think about that, I'll ask Brian to begin today's study, and he has another question for us. And here's the question John was referring to. Does the Bible teach us that we're dead in sin or just injured by it? Are we taught biblically that salvation is a gift of God's free grace or something that we must contribute towards in order to fully bring about our own salvation? I was having a conversation along these lines with a young woman the other day. She'd always assumed she needed to assist the Lord in getting her into heaven. We read together in John's Gospel, chapter 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I asked her how much Lazarus himself had done to assist the Lord in order to bring him back from the dead. She laughed at the nonsense I was inviting her to consider. Then we turned up and read Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, that before receiving Christ by faith, we are all spiritually dead in our sins before God. The penny dropped as the Spirit of God did his work in calling a helpless sinner to come forth from death to life. After that, once John chapter 5 verse 24 was read, with an explanation that the person who hears Jesus call passes from death to life, she was ready to commit her life in the sinner's prayer. Similarly, we could ask, am I really without hope apart from God's sovereign mercy, or do I in some fundamental way select my own destiny? These are some of the most important issues of all, and yet very often nice, respectable people hate the Bible's answer, for it tells us we're dead in sin, that salvation is a gracious gift from God alone, and that without God we're completely, totally and utterly without hope. It's a myth to think that in our own natural state we genuinely seek after God for who he is, We might seek him so as to preserve ourselves from death or to enhance our worldly enjoyments, but not for God as he really is in himself. This is what we mean when we say that we're deeply fallen as a result of our first parents' act of defiant disobedience in Eden's garden at the very dawning of human history. Now, sometimes you'll hear the word depravity being used as when someone accustomed to the Bible's teachings talks about humanity's total depravity before God. But we have to stop and ask ourselves exactly what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean the same as when, say, a newspaper talks about someone's depraved behaviour. No, biblically, this is a term that also applies to those nice, respectable people we were mentioning a moment ago. It applies to them every bit as much. You see, when we speak of man's depravity in the light of the Bible's teaching, And after the disaster in Eden's garden, we're referring to the natural human condition as it now exists, apart from any grace God may exert on it so as to restrain or transform us. In the biblical sense, total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as bad can be, but rather it means that our rebellion against God is total, and our inability to submit to God or even to reform ourselves is total, and so we're totally deserving of eternal punishment. It's hard to exaggerate the importance of admitting this, to admit that our condition really and truly is this bad. Because if we should think of ourselves as basically good, 
or even just a bit less than totally at odds with God, then our understanding, not to say our appreciation, of Christ's work for our salvation will be defective and wholly inadequate. With this conclusion, both parts of the Bible agree. In the first part, the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah says, the human heart is desperately sick. That's Jeremiah 17 verse 9. This was expanded upon later by Jesus Christ when he famously said in Mark 7 and 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Clearly, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. You know, people demand evidence, and that's fair enough. God hasn't left himself in any way without evidence, neither for his existence nor for the truth of what the Bible says. In our topic today, this teaching of the Bible about what we're calling the human condition of total depravity has to be the Bible teaching for which the most evidence is available to support its truth. Whenever we switch on the TV or internet news or pick up a newspaper, we are every single day of our lives confronted with appalling stories of the atrocities of war or senseless violence or utterly inexcusable aggression against defenceless women and children. Who can be left doubting that the human heart is desperately sick ever since that first moral transgression of God's command at the beginning of history? But we need to remind ourselves once again that such crimes and extreme behaviours, as we've just mentioned, are simply the most obvious indicators of the Bible's accurate diagnosis of the human condition. Even the heroes and the celebrated lives are afflicted with the same condition. Although they haven't run to the same excesses, they are still nevertheless guilty of the Bible's charge of depravity. Oh, I realise that may seem to you as unreasonable or even incredulous, but let me clarify, that's what I'm saying because that's plainly what the Bible teaches. Let me, however, try to explain it. Once a preacher was being challenged by a man who was indignantly asking, when is God going to do something about all the evil in this world? Eventually the preacher turned the question back on him and inquired of him if he was equally anxious to deal with the evil that existed in his own heart. On this occasion, that did seem to silence that particular would-be critic of God. But let me add two things. First, God's reasons, as shared in the Bible, for not intervening in the state of the world are totally different from any human reluctance to acknowledge and tackle personal issues. Second, some people do seem for a while at least to be oblivious to the state of their own heart, especially if they see themselves as helpful, decent living people who try not to harm anyone. This phenomenon is perhaps best illustrated. The author, George Orwell, once described a wasp that was sucking jam on his plate, and so he cut it in half. The wasp paid no attention, merely went on with its meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of its severed esophagus. Only when it tried to fly away did it grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to it. That wasp and people without Christ have a lot in common. Severed from their souls, but greedy and unaware, people continue to consume life's sweetness. Only when it's time to fly away might they grasp their dreadful condition. For example, on the night the Titanic went down, 
Major Putchin left $200,000 worth of stocks and bonds in his cabin and collected three oranges instead. He realised they'd be more useful. But some, even with their last breath, are oblivious to their state. P.T. Barnum, the circus magnate, on his deathbed said, How are the circus receipts today? The Apostle Paul describes, in Ephesians chapter 4, people like that as being of a futile mind. In other words, their lives are devoid of God's purpose. He next writes about their darkened understanding, in the sense that they are without God's revelation to guide them. He then continues to paint his picture of the human condition, of human depravity, by saying that they have hardened heart, meaning they're insensitive to God and his ways. Finally, he mentions impure greed and deceitful lusts to indicate how people without God live for self-gratification in some form or other. But this condition is so serious that it's not only in Ephesians chapter 4 that he sketches it for us, but also in Titus chapter 3 verse 3. Here he says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Together, these phrases or fragments plumb the depths of our fallen nature and of our depravity before God. Let's just focus on the hateful and hating. How we react to one another is a reflection of our attitude to God himself, which may not be so clearly expressed. Maybe you think that's going a bit too far. Not many people would describe themselves as militant atheists, and yet according to the Bible, even the most ardent, unconverted churchgoer and pillar of society is basically at enmity with God. We are spoken of as being enemies in our minds by Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Oh yes, you can do all the right things and say all the right things, and yet, without knowing Jesus Christ as your personal saviour, your heart is hostile towards God, whether you suspect it or not. That's why the gospel appeal can be summed up in these words from the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, be reconciled to God. We are so deeply fallen that only a total recreation by God will do. The story is told of Joe and Bill, Once they'd been good friends, but some offence had caused a bitter feud between them. It had been allowed to go on for years. Now Joe was on his deathbed. He sent for Bill and told him he'd forgive all the insults he'd received if Bill would do the same. So things were settled. Eventually Bill stood up to go. He got to the door before Joe called, but remember, the deal's all off if I should recover. I want to say to you that God's not like that. God's offer to us is not yes and no. How can we be sure of that? Because a death has taken place to bring about reconciliation, the death of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Listen again to the words of Romans chapter 5, verse 10. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. I sincerely hope and pray that you have identified yourself with the Lazarus syndrome we mentioned earlier. That is, recognised you cannot in any way help get yourself into heaven, simply because in God's sight you're dead in your sins, and a dead person can't even reach for the medicine bottle. The good news, of course, is once you realise this, God is ready to do everything for you in his amazing grace.
As usual, I'd like to remind you that the transcripts of all the talks in this series are available as a book with the title A Crisis of Identity. If you'd like a copy, just write in and we'd be pleased to hear any comments or questions you might have as well after listening today. So I'll give you the details shortly, but uh, before that, the talk you've heard today is also available to download via the internet in audio or text format. So, to obtain the book, simply ask for A Crisis of Identity, and you can do this by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. You might be interested to know that many titles of Search for Truth transcript books have been turned into e-books and are available at amazon.co.uk forward slash kindle hyphen e-books. Just type Search for Truth series into the search box and there you'll find them. Time's almost gone, but thanks for the pleasure of your company today. I hope you found Brian's talk useful and interesting. Next week, Brian will be looking into the Bible at another element of our Christian identity. And this time the question is, am I really fully forgiven? Well, would you like to be reassured? I do hope you'll join us to find out more. And until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. Now,